0: Uh, This morning, uh, I'm thrilled we are continuing this series titled Living as Exiles, and I hope that this journey has been fun for you. Uh, We're on week five right now, and I want to encourage you this morning, if you have uh, not already made plans, make sure that you go ahead and clear your schedule for next weekend. I'm going to invite you to come and and join us again as Pastor Tyler concludes uh, the sixth week of this series. This morning, I want to take a moment, I I want to review where we've been in this series. You'll recall we've been studying the book of 1 Peter, but we got here by way of a different story recorded back in the book of Mark chapter 4. Now this is a famous story that maybe some of us have, have heard before. Jesus and his disciples are out doing ministry, it's growing late in the day, they're getting tired and want to rest, and so Jesus says to his disciples, hey, why don't you pull up the boat? Let's go travel across the Sea of Galilee. Let's get away for a little while and let's find some rest. And so that's just what the disciples do. They pull the the boat up to the dock. They hop in and take off and and off they go. The sun goes down. It it turns to nighttime. And and all of a sudden, the disciples find themselves in the middle of a storm on this sea. Now, you should know some things about the disciples of Jesus. They had a couple different trades and a couple different professions that they all came from, but the majority of the 12 were fishermen, which meant that they were seasoned pros when it came to to, uh, operating a, a boat on some stormy waters. They were capable. They were competent. But for whatever reason, the storm that they found themselves in that particular evening left them terrified. The wind and the waves were surging around them. They were afraid for their lives, beginning to wonder if they were ever going to make it through the night. They're terrified, they're panicked, there's chaos. And in complete juxtaposition to their fear, there's Jesus found asleep at the stern of the boat. And of course, when the disciples discover this, they freak out even more. How could Jesus be asleep at a time like this? And and so they run to him, they grab him. I imagine they shake him awake and they say, teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? And now let's fast forward the story just a few thousand years, because here we sit today. There's a new batch of disciples who are navigating our own raging seas and you and I are trying to chart our way through the shifting cultural tides that are before us, we find ourselves in the middle of our own storm. And and many of us, although we might not say it out loud, sometimes we begin to wonder if Jesus is just sitting somewhere asleep on a seat cushion. In fact, some of us, certainly we wouldn't dare ever ask this question verbally, but maybe we've thought it in the back of our head a time or two, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care about the storm that I'm going through right now? Aren't you at all concerned about the wind and the waves around us? And see, over the last few weeks, we've examined the words of Peter who was on the boat that very day that Jesus spoke peace to calm the storm. We examine the expectation that that Peter invites us to for followers of Jesus that are caught in the middle of troubling times. See, because for us, this, this is the great plight of the disciple of Jesus. You and I, we're caught in the midst of a storm. We are in this world, but yet we're not of it. You and I are called to live as exiles in a foreign land. We're called to live lives that embody a few godly characteristics, a few different ethics. We're called to live lives of purpose, lives of growth, lives of honor, and ultimately lives of humility. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Title my message this morning is Humility for the Hard Times. Come on, would you say that with me? Say, "Humility humility for the hard times. Now help me out. Maybe you can complete this sentence. I'm sure you've heard this before. Tough times don't last, but... I'm sure you know the statement better than you just let on. Tough times don't last, but what? But tough people do. It's cliche, but it's true. We all go through experiences in life that help develop our resilience. We experience some things that enable us to have thick skin. And thick skin is a good thing. But what I found to be true about tough times not lasting and and tough people persevering through the midst of it, I've also found something else that's very unfortunate to be true. Sometimes thick skin can turn into a calloused heart. And what I found is that if we are not careful, hard times can make for hard hearts. And that's not what I want. That's not the life that we are invited to live. No, you and I are invited to live lives that embody humility for the hard times. Here we are, 1 Peter chapter four. I wanna take a look at this scripture, it'll be up on the screens. It says this, Peter writes and he says this, the end of all things is near. Now I wanna just pause right there because I'm sure there's somebody in the sound of my voice today that, that in the last two years, you found yourself making a similar statement. It's the end of the world. Gas is $10 a gallon. I gotta take out a second mortgage just so I can afford to drive my kids to school and back. Russell Wilson isn't a Seahawk. (laughs) Pete Davidson is dating a Kardashian. I don't know who either of those people are. My wife told me about that this morning. (laughs) It's the end of the world. Now that's silly, but but maybe there are some of us, like we started out kind of joking, but now we're at a place where we're like, well maybe it is, because we had the plague. And then we had the pestilence. There was that weird thing with the murder bees. And gosh, now there's, well, there's there's wars. And there's rumors of wars. And we're a rider on a pale horse away from opening up the book of wrath. I mean, maybe, maybe the end is near. All kidding aside, though, there are some here today. I, I know that you've seen the end of some things in the last few years or few months. You've seen the end of a life of a loved one. I know there are friends here today. You've you've seen the end of a marriage. You saw the end of a friendship because of betrayal, because of of, of something that went wrong. Maybe you're here today and, and you had this hope, this dream, this aspiration for your life, and you've seen that thing come to an end. And, friend, if that's you here today, uh, I don't want to minimize the pain that you're walking through. I don't want to make light of the storm that you're in. But I do want to invite you could you just hear what Peter has to say today? Because I think you might find some of what he has for you today to be quite helpful for whatever that situation is that you're in the midst of today. The end of all things is near. Peter says this. So, So here's what he invites us to do He says, therefore, be alert and sober minded for prayer. Would you say sober minded? He then says this, above all, here's the most important thing, maintain constant love for one another. Would you say love? love? Since love covers a multitude of sins. Here Peter's quoting Proverbs chapter 10. He says this, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Come on, on the count of three, can we all just let out a collective groan? One, two, three. Ugh. Good. Good. I hope you got it out of your system. That's the last time you're ever allowed to complain for the rest of your life. He says this, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others. Would you say serve? Serve. Use it to serve others as good stewards of the very uh, grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, which he just said that all of us should, let it be from the strength, and catch this, that God provides Don't try to do it on your own strength, your own unique ability, your own talent, your own whatever. No, do it on the strength that God provides. Here's why. we got to make sure we understand who the main character of this story is. So that God may be glorified. Through Christ Jesus in everything. Look at what Peter says here. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We can't forget who this thing's about. Then Peter continues on this this idea a few verses later. Chapter 5, verse 5, he says this, In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you, clothe yourself with humility. Would you say humility? Clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here Peter is quoting Proverbs chapter 3. He says this again, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And note, he doesn't say so that God can crush you or squeeze you or make you feel worse about your situation. No, humble yourself under the hand of the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares about you. Hang on to that promise today says this, be sober-minded and be alert. Peter says that again throughout Peter's letter to the churches. Peter will make this statement 10 times. This is a major theme of Peter's letter to the churches. Be sober-minded, be alert. Here's why. Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone that he can devour. So resist him. Stand firm, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers all throughout the world. Here's the promise that we cling to in verse 10. The God of all grace. Come on, I need you to believe this today. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Here's what he's going to do in the midst of that storm. He himself is going to restore. Come on, we believe that he himself is going to establish. We believe that he himself is going to strengthen and he's going to support you. But there's a caveat to this. And here's the part that none of us like. He's going to do it, but he's going to do it after you've suffered a little while. And that's the part of this that, that none of us want to sign up See, it's interesting, in the original language, uh, this passage that Peter wrote here uh, actually contains uh, 10 separate distinct ethics that early believers are are called and invited to embrace. Because of that, many scholars actually believe that this passage of Scripture would have served as a new set of 10 commandments for the first century church. Now, the way that this passage reads in our English language makes it a little bit different to distinguish those 10 things as such. But all of the same, it's important for us to to understand today that Peter's words carry some weight. It's 10 ethics that he invites us to. And and today what I want to do, I I just want to take time to, to unpack four of them today. Here's, here's what I believe. If we could get these four ethics right, I think that the other six will begin to fall in, into place, all right? So here's four ethics of focus for us today, for those of us living in exile, called for humility in the hard times. I've got four of them. The first one is this it's to be sober minded. Would you say be sober minded? Now, certainly, uh, in, in our current cultural context, we hear the word sobriety, and, and initially most of us will think that that is the opposite of being under the influence of some type of chemical. Uh, certainly the word speaks about drunkenness. There's plenty of teaching there. Uh, however, that's not exactly what Peter is getting at here when he says, be sober minded. Context would inform us, and original language would inform us that, that, that sobriety here, being sober minded, is actually something else. See, the opposite of being sober minded is to give into the frenzy or into the madness. In fact, in the Greek, the antonym for sober minded is the word mania which we've now adopted into our English vocabulary by way of psychology. But but Peter's concern here is that if believers become preoccupied by the storm that surrounds them, they'll lose their ability to exercise sound judgment about doctrine, which is what he spoke about in all of the verses leading up to this particular passage. But it'll also rob them of their ability to think rationally about matters of everyday life which is what he'll go on to talk about next. Come on, you ever been there? You ever been caught in the madness, in the frenzy? I know some of you sat in front of a TV yesterday, caught in the madness that is March, wondering if your bracket was about to be destroyed. And we've all had these weird little things that they just disturb our sense of of calm. I remember when my wife and I got married, uh, getting engaged was cool, Getting married was cool. There was just this awful in-between where you were trying to plan a wedding. You, you know what I'm talking about? Like you're trying to figure out what color flowers you like, and you're trying to figure out the guest list, and you're trying to figure out what colors you like, and then you're trying to figure out what flowers you like, and then you're trying to figure out the venue, and then you're trying to figure out the flowers again, and there's just so many things that you're worried about. And it's madness! I remember a few days before the wedding, we we, we were blessed. We we had a friend of a friend of a friend who offered to do our wedding cake for us. And so my wife, uh, through this weird game of telephone, gave the parameters for what she hoped the wedding cake would look like. Now, we tried to have kind of a, a classic traditional wedding look. So my wife had a, a beautiful white gown. I had a tuxedo with a bow tie. It's a, it's a black and white affair. You know, that, 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 that whole thing. And, and so the cake that my wife asked for would, would reflect such. A couple days before the wedding, my wife's friend comes over to the house and she's got the cake all boxed up. And she didn't look at it yet because she wanted my wife to, to get the opportunity to see the cake for the first time on her own. And so she unboxes this cake. And again... <sighs> Bow tie, black and white. Etsy, hooray! She opens the box and inside there's something that looked like it belonged out of Luau. There's blues and greens. Moana is singing her song on this cake. There's a flower lei on top. I kid you not. There's no guy with a bow tie or gal in a gown. There's a girl in a grass skirt and a fella who looks like Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> Flattered, really. My wife opens this box and she freaks out. She goes, this isn't going to work. It's not going to match the flowers. It's not going to match the venue. It's not going to match the guest list. It's not going to match the flowers. Our day is ruined. It's not going to match my dress. It's not going to match the flowers. (laughs) Madness. Now, I remember, like, during our engagement, I was cool as a cucumber. I was fine leading up to to the wedding until the night before. And that's when that 25-foot swell came up over the bow of the boat and just crushed me. Now, I got my, my tuxedo from a place, and, and I didn't have time the day that I picked it up to, to, to actually try it on at the store. I was in a hurry, so I grabbed it. I went home. I got my tuxedo from, from an establishment known as the Men's Warehouse. If you know anything about the Men's Warehouse, you know that they have a business model. comes with a promise. They say that you're going to like the way that you look. <laughs> and they believe this so ardently that they guarantee it here's the problem. I tried that tuxedo on. I did not like the way that I looked. I looked like a seven-year-old boy trying on his daddy's suit. The shoulders were boxy. The pants were baggy. I looked like a buffoon. And I'm sitting here staring at myself in the mirror going, I'm supposed to get married in 12 hours, but I can't do it looking like this. I can't show up to my wedding looking this way. Now I understand, no, no one's gonna be paying attention to me. I get that, I, I understand who the star of this show is. I, I understand that. However, there is one person in that room who is going to be looking at me, and that one person happens to kind of matter a lot to me. And here's what I know is gonna happen. If I'm standing up on that altar, and my bride to me comes walking around the corner of that aisle, and she looks down the hallway at me, and she sees my Millie Vanilli looking self looking like this. Man, she's, she's going to take one look at me and she's going to go, uh Dad, get me out of here. We're going. Because if he can't get himself right for this day, there's no way he's going to be able to take care of me when I'm old and gray. There's no way he'll be able to raise children. There's no way he'll be able to mow a lawn. There's no way he'll be able to potty train a dog. There's no way I can trust him if he looks like this. Totally Rational. I'm freaking out. I remember that, that, that night, I, I picked up my phone and I called my best friend, Nick Sandy. He runs music at our Rainier campus. And I'm freaking out. Nick, I've got my suit. It came with a promise. They said I'd like the way that I look, but I don't. They guaranteed it. They were wrong. What am I going to do? The day's ruined. It's not going to match our flowers. She's not going to want to marry me. I'm freaking out. And so, of course, Nick just kind of talks me down from CON 5. He's like, hey, it's all right, man. I'll pick you up. We'll take you to the store. We'll get you a different suit. It's okay. So he picks me up, drives me to the mall, and of course, like, I'm on a mission. I've got my credit card out. I'm ready to finance my way into a good wedding. He, like, steers me away from the expensive store and is like, no, 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 no. This is your tax bracket. You belong down here. <laughs> You're right, thank you. we nine years later, we, we got married and we got a better cake. The, the story had a happy ending. Um, I remember the, the chaos and the frenzy, the mania, the fear of something so trivial as a cake and a suit. The problem is this. I also remember the feeling of panic and madness and chaos a few years later when my wife almost died a week after our son was born. I remember that sinking feeling when we had to race back to the ER because we didn't know what was going on. Something had changed with my wife's health very rapidly. Things were declining. I remember getting raced into the ER room. They hooked my wife up to all of these wires and tubes and machines. And I remember the doctor picking up my son in his car seat, walking me out of the room, handing me my little boy, and saying to me, you're going to need to go home, grab an overnight bag for you and for the rest of your family. Young man, I don't mean to alarm you, I think we're going to be able to take care of her, but you need to understand this. If you waited 30 more minutes to bring her in, you and I would be having a very different conversation about how you're going to be raising this boy by yourself. I remember the terror. I remember the panic in that moment. And I remember thinking to myself, God, don't you... And look for all of us, whether small or rather significant in size, we all have storms. It's interesting to me that Peter says that we ought to be alert and sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. It's not just so that we could become stoic or numb to the madness around us, it's so that we could learn how to fix our eyes on Jesus. Is it any wonder that these words are written by the same Peter who walked on water with Jesus? But the moment that he takes his focus off of his Savior, he begins to succumb to the storm around him and drowns. Peter's concern here is this. Believers, take it from me. Don't give in to the madness. Don't buy into the frenzy. Don't lose sight of your Savior. Don't abandon sound judgment. Be sober-minded. Fix your eyes and your thoughts on the source of your salvation. That's what prayer is. The ultimate refocus. The ultimate recalibration. Friend, don't get hung up in the hard times. Be alert. Oh, yeah. Be sober-minded. Second ethic is this. It's love one another. Would you say love one another? And oh. Peter quoted Proverbs 10, chapter 12 here, I want to read that verse in its entirety. It says this. It says, Hatred stirs up conflict. Yeah. But love, covers all offenses. Warren Wiersbe comments on this passage in in, in 1 Peter, and he says this. He says, where there's hatred, there's malice. And malice causes a person to want to tear down the reputation of his enemy. And this leads to gossip and slander. And now certainly we we wouldn't do this here at Life Center, but maybe those other people at those other churches in other places, maybe, maybe, maybe sometimes they would try to make their gossip just sound more spiritual by, by telling people things so that they might pray more intelligently. I love church people. I do. I really do. I, I, I love church people. I am a church person. I married a church girl. We were both raised by church people. We intend to raise our own church people. I love church people. But if, I've noticed this bizarre phenomenon with church people. Maybe you've witnessed this too. Church people can be really, really good at sophisticating their selfish tendencies. You seen this? I, 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 I've seen this. I, I know this to be true. Go ahead, ask me how I know that this is true. Go ahead and ask me. How do I know? Because I do it. I do it. And let's be honest, for a minute here, we, we all do it. Let's get off our moral high horse here. Let's tell it like it is. We all do this. We don't mean to do it, m- most of us anyway, but we all have these moments of selfishness where we demand our own way. We play these grotesque zero-sum games where we just look for any and every opportunity to cut that person down to size, to expose them for the fraud that we think they really are, to put their reputation on blast, rather than doing the honorable thing, rather than doing the, the, the biblical thing and loving one another. We do this. We all do. We we let ourselves grow competitive or spiteful. We involve people that have nothing to do with the matter. We say things we shouldn't out of anger, and we treat others with coldness and contempt. We all do this, every single one of us, except my grandmother. Now don't get me wrong, Peter's call here, this isn't for a spineless, wishy-washy love that that, that doesn't have any sense of, of right and wrong. Peter writes these words, James says something similar when he says whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Love isn't blind to harmful behavior. Love isn't indifferent in the face of injustice. Love doesn't permit people to continue living in sinful, destructive behaviors for themselves or for those around them. But here's what love doesn't do. It definitely doesn't demand that it gets its own way. Love isn't rude. Now, love isn't arrogant. Love isn't irritable. Love isn't offended by every little thing. Love doesn't get jealous of others' success. Love doesn't keep record of wrongs. Love isn't impatient, it's not unkind. Love isn't out for blood. So, you and I, we, this is a, a tough assignment, but we're called to love one another. So, friend, when the end of of all things is near, when your back's against the wall, when the storm is raging around you, and it feels like it's every man or woman for themselves, love one another. Don't get heartless in the hard times, have a heart. Third ethic is this it's to be hospitable without complaining. Now, this, this instruction reminds me of a story that we see recorded in the Gospels. Book of Luke chapter 10 talks about this. I love the way that uh, Pastor Eugene Peterson paraphrased this story in the message. He says this, verse 10. Uh, he says, as they continued their travel, Jesus entered a village. And there he found a woman by the name of Martha who welcomed him. And she made him feel quite at home. Here, Martha, she's, she's being hospitable. She's doing the right thing. This is good. Now, Martha had a sister, her name was Mary, who sat before the master, hanging on his every word. Now, the the Jewish terminology there is actually that she was sitting at the feet of her rabbi, which which means more than just she really liked what he said because it was clever or witty. No, she's actually taking a a position of submission where she's saying, teacher, you can tell me whatever it is. You you could tell me things that'll make me uncomfortable, things that I don't want to hear. I'm submitted to it anyway. But it says this, Martha was pulled away by all she had to do in the kitchen. Now bear in mind, this is the same Jesus that turned water into wine. This is the same Jesus that that he he took a small fish and chips and fed thousands of people with it. If he got hungry, he he can take care of it. It's all right. But look at what begins to happen with Martha's heart. Later, she steps in, interrupting them, and she says these words, Master, don't you care? Don't you care what I'm going through? Don't you care about how hard this is for me? Don't you care that I've been left in abandoned? Don't you care? Look at how this hard time has now turned into a hard heart. And here's what hard hearts do. They make some bad decisions because here's what Martha says next. She attempts to issue Jesus a command and she says, tell her to lend me a hand. Y'all, I tried telling my mom and dad what to do one time and one time only in my life. That was the end of that. (laughs) Look, I know that Martha is having a a really, really hard time right now. I know it's very frustrating. I get that. But I can't help but wonder if she might have forgotten who she was talking to here. See, here's a problem with with complaints. This is why we have to be hospitable without complaining. When it comes to complaints, the problem is that our complaints reveal our convictions. And Martha's words make it clear who she believes the most important person in the room to be. See, but I love Jesus' response here. It's it's gentle, but it cuts right to the heart of the matter. The master said, Martha, Martha, dear Martha, you're fussing far too much. You're getting yourself all worked up over nothing, which is exactly what every woman wants to hear when they're in the middle of of something stressful. (laughs) Jesus says this, only one thing is essential, and Mary has chosen it. It's the main course, and it won't be taken from her. Look at Martha. She's, she, she has access to the heart of God. She's done the right thing. She's been hospitable. But she can't keep herself from complaining because the person that she really wants to be served in that house is herself. This had nothing to do with honoring Jesus. It was all about her getting her own way. What she wanted on her timeline. See, this is the danger for the achievers in the room. Those of us who who are driven and want to accomplish great things, this is also the danger for the helpers in the room. Those of us that just want to contribute to somebody else's dream in a significant way. The way that God made you is beautiful and wonderful. But friends, if we don't deal with the latent narcissism lurking within our own hearts... I don't think we need to bother worrying about the roaring lion at the doorstep because we've got a dangerous animal prowling around the cognitive hallways of our mind seeking for ways to devour us from within. This is why Peter concludes his letter talking about the monster within before dealing with the monster without You'll recall his words, chapter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, that leads us to our fourth ethic today. Be sober-minded, love one another, be hospitable without complaining, but fourth and finally, humble yourself. Would you say humble yourself? Humble yourself. See, here's a challenge with humility. Most of us aren't born with it. In fact, for for, for many of us, maybe for all of us, humility is crafted in the hard times. There's a story about a young man. He he was the greatest athlete in North America in the 1990s. Uh, He had a rags to riches story, went from a nobody to somebody that every little boy in America wanted to be like his achievements in the athletic field, but but, but also out in life, were second to none. There's a young man by the name of Charlie Conway. And Charlie Conway was the forward for a hockey team known as the Mighty Ducks. Yeah. Maybe you know the story. Greatest athlete in North America. Charlie Conway in D1 rises from nobody to somebody. Charlie Conway in D2 establishes himself as the dominant hockey force in North America and around the world. But then we get to D3. And here's where things change because Charlie and his friends, they go off to college. Their their former coach takes off. Now there's a new coach who steps in to oversee the team. And, And Charlie and this new coach, they butt heads. Because this new coach steps in and he wants to do things different, but Charlie doesn't want to do that. Charlie wants to do things his way, because his way worked, and he's Charlie Conway. And it's interesting how all of a sudden this conflict reveals something that's been lurking beneath the surface in Charlie's life the entire story long. This conflict forces Charlie to end up leaving the team. He goes off, does his own thing. Another young man joins the team, becomes the team captain. He's super talented. The Ducks continue playing on. Series of events takes place. Charlie uh, learns some things about the situation he didn't know before. The end of the film, he and the coach are able to reconcile, make amends, extend some apologies. and, And Charlie joins the team again, just in time for the last game of the season. And wouldn't you know it, in true Hollywood fashion, this game is just one for the ages. It's back and forth, it's tense, it's gritty. And sure enough, there's a minute left, it's a tie game. We don't know what's gonna happen, because it's Hollywood, no one could see this coming. Charlie's coach grabs him, he, he says to him something that he certainly would not have said at the beginning of this film. He says, Charlie, you're the heart and soul of this team. And if you get the chance to score that game winning shot, I want you to take it. And wouldn't you know, Hollywood does what Hollywood does. With 40 seconds left, Charlie gets the puck from the other team and he begins charging down the rink. The math on this will not make sense to you. Please don't try to add it up. 30 seconds, he's got three defenders. He makes the first man miss. 20 seconds left, he makes the second defender miss. 10 seconds left, there's one defender and the goalie. Charlie makes a cross move and brings the puck back here and it makes both the defender and the goalie bite. There's now less than five seconds on the clock. Charlie winds up to take the shot and skates right on by and instead that puck just slides back on the ice, and it hits the stick of somebody who had no business being on the ice rink at that point in the game. Somebody who was not the greatest athlete of the 90s, somebody who you probably actually forgot existed in this movie until right now, this kid named Goldberg. Goldberg is in disbelief. He can't believe that he's got the puck. The game is on the line. The net is empty. There's three seconds, and Goldberg looks at the puck. And he looks at the net. And he looks back at the puck. And he looks back at the net. And the, the stands are standing and they're saying, take the shot. So Goldberg winds that stick up. And sure enough, he slaps the puck right into the net. The siren goes off. The Ducks win. Coach charges out onto the ice. He picks Charlie up. They celebrate. They have a party. None of this story would have happened had Charlie not gone through this process of learning how to humble himself. Here's what's interesting. As I read the Bible, this is is personal opinion. Make sure you understand that. As I read through scripture, uh, I have found that the most honored and esteemed human being In Scripture, apart from the God-man, Jesus himself, the most honored and esteemed person that we encounter in Scripture is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now certainly there are some other characters in Scripture that they might have more famous stories told about them. Certainly there are other characters that occupy more chunks of Scripture or authored more parts of our Bible. But when it comes to just esteem and honor, there is no one who outranks Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's the most celebrated figure of Christianity and the Bible. In in fact, if you came from a Catholic background, maybe at one point or another, you prayed either uh, to or or through her, we can argue doctrine, another time. The point is that, that she is a person of great honor in scripture, but that's only because you and I have access to the results. See, the irony about Mary, the mother of God, is that up until a certain point, she wasn't heralded with honor, she was probably drowning in a sea of humiliation. A.J. Swoboda, he's a pastor and author down in the Portland area, says this in, in his book, A Glorious Dark, he said, if there's one person who desperately needed Jesus to be resurrected, it was Mary. The whole thing about her story, getting pregnant while being a virgin and all, probably wasn't believed by anybody. She held that story in the entire time, even when people called her a liar, and other bad words that you would use to describe somebody you thought was caught in sexually promiscuous behavior. When we think long and hard about it, the only time, Swoboda says, that Mary's story would have actually been believed by others was after Jesus had resurrected. It was only then that her story was legitimized. It was only then that Mary was proved right. After Jesus showed off his resurrected body, that was her vindication. That was her validation that her story was spot on. And I love what Swoboda says next. And this is why we look forward to Easter Sunday. We're all like Mary. We all need Resurrection Sunday because we can't prove our stories otherwise. Our hope, our only hope, is that someday Jesus will come again so that all the people who call us crazy won't look at us like we're so weird. Man, I wonder this. I wonder how many times during the course of Mary's nine-month pregnancy she caught a weird glare from somebody. I wonder how many times she saw folks whispering, it's Mary, it's Mary, did you hear? Yeah, I heard. I heard Joseph's going to leave her. What do you think really happened? How many times did she walk into the room and everybody's laughing and chatting, they're having a good time, she walks in and it's silence. Man, how many times do you think that she fought to keep a level head instead of giving in to the madness, to the frenzy, to the mania of the storm that she found herself in? I wonder how badly there were times that she just wanted to go and pick that spear up and throw it back at people who were tarnishing her reputation, saying things about her that just weren't true. I'm sure that she wanted payback. It must have been so hard for her to love others. You want to talk about hospitality? She literally housed God inside of her belly. I've heard of Southern hospitality. This is something else entirely. And how easy would it have been for her to to just grow bitter or to grow entitled? To say, God, don't you care? what they're saying about me. I was told I'm blessed and highly favored and I'm only doing what you've asked me to do, but right now it's really difficult not to complain. Yet Mary has a heart for the hard times. Mary has a heart of humility, a heart that's that saying these words after she received that promise initially. Mary sings this song in Luke 1. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he's looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. And honor and esteem are hers in the future. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. It didn't happen because of a haughty spirit. It happened because she had a humble heart. Humble yourself, Peter says. Cast all your cares upon him because he does care for you. And remember that promise in verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he's going to restore you. Come on, do we believe that today? He's going to establish you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to support you today, friend. But he's going to do it after you've suffered a little while. And so maybe today that's you. Maybe you're in the middle of a hard time today. Maybe you, like Peter, believe the end of all things is near. Maybe you're caught in the middle of a storm today. Here's the good news for you today, friend. Jesus has authority over the wind and the waves. Jesus has authority over death and the grave. Whatever suffering, whatever storm you are walking through today, can I invite you to submit yourself to him? Come on, whatever that heartache is, whatever that area of hurt or hard time is, what would it look like for you to humble yourself and to cast your cares on him? I know that it's tough right now, but friend, I promise you, tough times don't last. Tough people do. God will strengthen you. But make sure you let him do it. Don't try to do it on your own strength, because then a hard time could turn into a hard heart. That's not what we're invited to. No, we're invited to experience humility for the hard times. I'm going to invite you to pull out your phone and take a next step today. Maybe you wanna grab that card off the seat back in front of you. If you're online, there's an option popping up in the chat box right now. There's a QR code up on the screen. I'd invite you to point your camera at that uh, little shape there. I wanna invite you to take take a step today. Maybe today your next step is is gonna be to embrace humility. Okay, I know for some of us, the concept of humility is something that we would want to resist. But remember, God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. What if you thought about it like this? Could you embrace humility like putting on a warm jacket on a cold day? Maybe you need to embrace humility today. Maybe your next step, this is one of your options, is to serve. That was one of the ethics that Peter talked about we didn't have time to dive into today. But we have an opportunity for you to serve next Saturday, the 26th. We've got our Saturday serve event from nine to noon. If, if that's you, go ahead, check that box. My friend, Brianna, will reach out to you this week. We'll get you the information that you need so that you can come and you can serve. Maybe finally, your step, this is, this is the ultimate next step that you can take. It's a step from death to life. It's a, it's a step to allow Jesus to, to rescue you out of that storm that you're in. And you wanna say yes to becoming a follower of Jesus today. If that's you, check that box. Our team wants to call you this week, pray with you talk to you about the decision that you made and send you again. I'm gonna invite you to this Life Center. Would you stand to your feet all across this room? You're at home. Why don't you stand too? I wanna pray a blessing over you. And for those friends saying yes to Jesus today, I wanna walk you through a prayer as well. God, thanks for who you are. Thank you that you're with us in the middle of the storm. God, thank you that you do in fact care. Jesus, thank you that you set the ultimate example of humility for the hard times. I pray that you be with my friends today. Help them to live it out. For my friends today who are saying yes to you, if that's you, I wanna invite you to to repeat this prayer after me in Life Center. I'm gonna invite all of us to do this together because these new friends are being saved into a body of believers. Could we repeat this prayer together? Say, Jesus, thank you for loving me. I put my trust in you. Forgive me of my sin. Make me a new creation. And help me to follow you every day of my life. In your name, Jesus, I pray, amen. Can we applaud those who prayed that prayer today? I mean it. If if you said yes today, please check that box. Swing by our Connect Center. Uh, Life Center, we love you so much. Uh, Our pastor's prayer team will be down front. You want to talk to somebody, you want to pray with somebody, please do so. And on your way out, please grab a touch card for Easter for our egg hunt. Real excited about Resurrection Sunday coming up. We love you. Make it a great week.